During this next video clip, the ushers are going to come and they're going to give you something. Oh, a gift, you say. Yes, a rock. And uh, uh, don't throw it yet. Um, if you brought your own tomato, don't throw that either. Just hold on to that rock. All will be explained. And the second thing is I just want to set up this clip. Uh, I know Kelly Garvey will be happy with this. This is from a movie called... Uh, Les Miserables, um, starts out with Jean Valjean, a, a, a criminal, kind of a, a seedy guy, who is invited in to the home of a, of a minister and his wife, and he repays their hospitality and their kindness and their warm meal by stealing their silver and bopping the priest on the head. And, uh, and that's where we'll pick up the story. Watch this. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. I love that scene. And best of all, there's no singing in it. And, uh... <laughs> oh, no. Shh, 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 shh. Um, let me tell the millennials and those younger about a time uh, where you couldn't just Google the lyrics to your favorite song. If you didn't own the album, yes, I said album, and if they didn't have the lyrics and the liner notes, you had to kind of wing it if you wanted to sing along. And it made for some interesting misheard lyrics. I was like, um, is Jimi Hendrix really singing, excuse me while I kiss this guy? 
And, uh, and then I, I just looked up real life misheard lyrics. It, it took them, it took these people years before they, somebody actually corrected them. How about this one? We built this city. We built this city on sausage rolls. You know that song? Um, how about this one? The ants are my friends. <laughs> They're blowing in the wind. Um, you know this one? Dreams of war, dreams of lies, dreams of dragons, fire, and a baked apple pie. <laughs> how about this? Uh, Sweet dreams are made of cheese. I like this one. Hold me close, a young Tony Danza. <laughs> How about this? Then I saw her face. Now I'm gonna leave her. And there, there's a lot of uh, Christian songs and hymns that were misunderstood. I, there was this one. So a chair eats an old rubber cross, which is strange. Now, when it comes to a song lyric that you don't get, that's an easy fix. You just Google the lyrics. It gets straightened out really quick. But there's something... There's something we just can't mumble our way through. Uh, there's something that we just, is so imperative that we get right as a church, as Christians. It's the most compelling, most distinctive, important idea in the Christian faith. We, we have to get grace right. And, and the word itself actually appears in the New Testament more times than forgiveness, more times than prayer or Mary or hell. The Bible even teaches that it is by grace we are saved, meaning our very eternity rests on this, which means we need to get the lyrics to this song right. So, so that's what we're doing in this series. We're focusing on getting grace right. And last week we started off with a bit of a theological primer, Grace 101, what it is, what it costs, how to receive it. And next week, we're going to talk about what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote called a cheap grace. Uh, that's how to screw grace up. It's, it's powerless. It's meaningless. It's applied in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong situations. Um, that's going to be an important one. I hope, I hope you'll stick with us. And that leads us into Holy Week, Good Friday, the sacrifice of our Lord, then a celebration on Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. That's just practice, yeah, and a C minus on that. He is risen. But uh, this week, let's look at extending grace to ourselves, to others, because grace is meant not only to be received, as we talked about last week, but then it's meant to be lived out, to be applied daily, given away. So... What does that look like? I, I think the best example is found in this very memorable moment in, in the life and the teaching of Jesus. Let me just read it for you. It's, it's John chapter 8, beginning verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time until only Jesus was left standing with the woman. And Jesus asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now that is a story of grace, but not just grace. It's first a story of sin and corruption and decadence and and mean, bullying religious people and judgment. And then it's a story of grace. And as we learned last week, it's important to get the first part down because if you don't, grace won't be as amazing as it deserves to be. And you won't extend it as far and wide as, as you should. So let's, let's talk about the dark side of the story because there's, there's a lot of darkness. First, we have the sin of the people who brought this woman to Jesus. They didn't have to bring her to Jesus, heaping shame and ridicule on her in front of everybody. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't care about this woman. They didn't care if she was beaten or stoned or exposed or humiliated. She, she was nothing to them. She was less than nothing. She was a prop to them. They were cruel. Anyone, anyone notice who they didn't drag out in front of everyone? Where's the dude? Where's the dude? The man she was caught in adultery with. They didn't really care about the fairness or the moral sanctity of this. It was a stunt. They, they wanted to trap Jesus. And, and here was the trap. If Jesus said, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he would have gotten in trouble with the Roman government, which was in power at that time, because only they had the authority to exercise capital punishment. And then he would have lost his reputation as, as being a friend of sinners. And uh, if Jesus said, don't stone her, then he would have been accused of being light on sin, uh, compromising, weak, someone who didn't really embrace God's law and holiness. Either way, we got you, Jesus. What you gonna do? So, so there was this conniving, heartless, manipulative sin uh, the people who brought before Jesus. The woman uh, was just a pawn, a prop. And, and then there was the sin of the people who caught her in the act. The Bible's very clear that she was indeed caught in the act. Uh, the language is important here because it's the basis for which they were making a serious legal claim. It meant they had all the evidence they need to convict her. Here's what having that evidence to convict meant in the ancient Eastern culture of that day. Um, This was so that suspicious husbands couldn't just uh, accuse their wives without reason. The law required a testimony from two witnesses who saw the couple together. And not just together, but like together, together. 
Are you picking up what I'm laying down here? Okay, good, because I don't really want to spell it out. Now, not only that, the two witnesses had to see her at the same time in the same place. That's a high bar of evidence. Does something seem a little wonky here, a little uh, rotten in Denmark, uh, a little sus, as the kids say? Uh, First of all, they're bringing this woman to who? A traveling preacher? Not to the Sanhedrin? That's suspicious. Second, again, where's the dude? Uh, Takes two to tango, but the guy is mysteriously absent. Thirdly, verse 4 says they caught her in the very act of adultery. So these pervs just happen to be looking in the window at the right place, at the right time. You know, it's almost, it's universally accepted in this story that, that um, the way they just coincidentally happened to have two witnesses to this very private sin was, well, it was a setup. Um, but that's not all. The law also said that if you were to see someone about to sin in that way, it was your responsibility as a caring and compassionate God-following person to say something to try and prevent it. Did that happen here? Obviously not. So, so the witnesses and whoever else was involved in setting her up uh, are not only some uh, creepy looky-loos, peeping Toms looking through the window, uh, not only is it gross and unethical and sneaky, according to the law, the witnesses sinned by doing nothing the sin of omission. And then you have the sin of the man who was in adultery with her. Uh, They obviously let him go, which is all kinds of suspicious. Was he recruited? Uh, Part of this religious team? Anyways, he wasn't needed for this trap, but he certainly was a part of this darkness. And finally, we have the sin of the woman herself. And, And she did sin badly. You know, regardless of how you may feel about her, you may feel sorry for this unfair public shaming. Uh, certainly there's misogyny all wrapped up in this, the setup. But however you slice it, it's still the ultimate betrayal of trust on her part. So who deserved to be stoned? Who deserved to die? You may say, well, no one, but according to law, God's moral and ceremonial law, which the Pharisees have, have used to accuse this woman. So, so who, who had engaged in heinous, premeditated, purposeful pursuit of sinful behavior before a holy God? Who, who held him in contempt with their behavior? Who? All of them. Just like us. So I love what Jesus does. First thing he does is he ignores the Pharisees, which is always a great place to begin with legalists. I highly recommend it. He ignores them. He bends over and he begins to write in the sand on the ground. And as far as I can tell, it's the only time we're told that Jesus wrote something. And he writes in the dirt and we have no idea what he writes. Lots of speculation has been given about this. Let me give you my speculation. You know, in Deuteronomy 9.10, it says that when um, God the Father wrote the Ten Commandments, what did, he, what did he write it with? 
his finger, wrote it on stone. And I believe you might have the same thing going on here. Jesus is taking his finger, and I believe he's doing as God the Father did. He's writing the law on the ground. I'm speculating here, but maybe what he wrote down, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Or maybe he wrote, thou shalt not bear false witness. Uh, Again, I'm speculating, but it seems like he wrote something that shook him up. Jesus, the omniscient one, the one who knows our hearts and our motives, may have known that these men that were unfaithful perhaps to their own wives were self-righteous hypocrites. Could it, could it even be possible that since this woman, Jesus will say in a moment, had a life of sin, that she may have been the sort of woman that some of these men had, had been with themselves? Jesus' words to this woman have become legendary, iconic, haven't they? If any of you are without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And so Jesus is implying, well, if you want to put her to death, how many of you have slept with her? Uh, How many of you have been unfaithful to your wives? How many of you were voyeuristic perverts while looking through the window? Maybe didn't at least commit adultery in your own heart. And we're told that they leave. And there would be no stoning today. And there's only one man that's remaining standing with this woman. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the only man in this story that did not take advantage of this woman. It seems like every other man she'd ever been with had used her, used her for sex. The religious leaders used her not as a person, but as a prop. All the other men in the equation are seeking to rob this woman of her dignity. And Christ is the only exception. And Jesus looks upon her with compassion Jesus forgives her for her sin, but does Jesus let her off the hook with kind of a wink at her indiscretion? He does not. He says, go and leave your life of sin. And so Jesus tells her uh, to change her life, make a 180 degree directional change to turn from the old, to embrace the new. He does not call her a whore. He does not call her a slut. He does not call her a homewrecker calls her woman. It's actually the same Greek term that he used in the second chapter of of John's gospel to refer to his own mother, woman. And he speaks to her with dignity. He speaks to her with respect. He speaks to her with honor and grace and love. This, This may have been the first time in a great number of years that any man had spoken to her with a tone of dignity and affection. There's a couple of delicious poetic ironies in this story. First, here are the religious leaders who bring this woman to Jesus for her to be judged. And they up being they end up being judged for their hypocrisy. A second irony in this, I think, is the Old Testament law states that the consequence of this sin is death. And you know what? A death actually would happen. It will happen a few months later. Jesus 
would die for this woman's adultery. You've heard it said, you know, Jesus died for your sin. What that means is every time you told a lie, every time you've lusted in your heart, every time you've been greedy or gossipy or gluttonous, every one of those things, Christ paid the penalty in your place. And so as Christ hangs on the cross, suffering, beaten, broken, bleeding, it's because of Jonathan's pride. It's because of your sins of commission and your sins of omission. That's why he's there. And he will pay with his own body and his own blood for her sin. And so the Old Testament law will be upheld in a few months. Her sin will be punished with death, but not her own death. Jesus is punished in her place, and so Jesus can forgive her. Jesus can love her. Jesus can give her the opportunity to leave her life of sin and live a new transformed life. The third beautiful irony in all of this is that while the Pharisees uh, meant to shame and punish her by calling out her sin, what they intended for evil, Christ used for good. What they intended for wrath, Christ used for mercy and grace. In God's great irony, everything this woman had done was brought to a culmination whereby she was forgiven and set free. And uh, she's, she's, she's been caught, but now she can stop living the lie, stop wearing the mask. She's experienced the forgiveness of the only one who can truly and fully forgive her. Now let's, let's pause there for a moment. Because um, we really are all sinners. We are. We're missers of the mark. If, if it were not for the grace of God, Romans says that the payoff of our sin is death. Physical, uh, relational, spiritual, eternal death. It's what would face each of us. It's, what, it's what's due us. But don't lose sight of this. It's not a fun thing to think about, but it's the truth and it's important. Um, I don't want you to lose sight of how amazing grace is. Our only hope is for a grace-filled, grace-giving God. And we have one, one who has offered us that very grace that we need through the life and the death of Jesus as a gift. If, if we, we just take it, just receive it. But once taken, it's meant to be lived, applied, given to others. You without sin cast the first stone. When you are on the receiving end of grace, it is incumbent on us to give grace, to live grace. Jesus said, if any of you are truly sinless in this matter, sinless in terms of your own sexual life, sinless in terms of what you did to this woman, sinless in your heart, then throw the stone. And no one did because no one was. And so Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us this morning, that we are to be grace givers. I don't know if we're eager to admit this about ourselves, but the truth is, most of us, we're, we're eager to throw stones 
a lot of the time, to find fault, to criticize, to throw someone under the bus. We're quick to forget that every human being is marked by brokenness of some kind, um, by weakness, by insecurity, probably some trauma or injustice in their life. And when you lock eyes with someone, you can safely assume that they carry some deep wounds. They've endured family backgrounds that had dysfunction, that they live day in and day out with areas of temptation and struggle where they feel fragile and just barely getting by. And so only throw your rock if you don't have any of that in your life, okay? Um, Otherwise, drop the rock and throw grace their way instead. See, um, see them the way Jesus sees them through the eyes of grace. Oh, that grace would be lived out in our life, in our church, that knack would be known as a grace-filled church. Everyone but Jesus saw this woman who was caught in adultery as a moral failure, someone deserving of condemnation and death. But through the lens of grace, Jesus saw this, this precious child of God, someone who was struggling in life, someone who had made many mistakes, just like everyone else. But he also saw someone with a future Uh, He saw someone with great potential who could grow in the person that God had intended, just like the way he sees you. God's grace is rooted in radical love for us, a love so wild, an overwhelming, never-ending, seems like a reckless love, even unto death. Sacrificial. How do you think God sees you? Do you think he sees just your sin, your failures, your screw-ups? Or does he see someone who he madly loves? Let me, let me tell you something about being a father. I'm the only man who can look at my kids and see every day that they ever lived. Every day. I can see it all in their eyes, in their expressions. I've watched for years. I know every smile, every trembling lip. Uh, When I look at my now adult children, I can still see the baby I cradled in my arms. Uh, I see the baby who used to lick her wrist to soothe herself to sleep. I, I see the toddler who took one bite out of every apple in our fruit bowl. I see the silly six-year-old singing and dancing. I see, I see three brave girls in kindergarten in grade one as I hide a block away, making sure they're able to catch the right school bus at the transfer station. Um, I see the girl discovering she's got some real artistic chops. I see the awkward 12-year-old entering puberty. I see the high schooler who's still not embarrassed to go to concerts with their old man. I see the freshman in college. I can't see what's in store, maybe walking down an aisle in marriage, maybe becoming a parent themselves. 
I see all those years, all those faces, all those memories in an instant. And probably until the day I die, my children will always seem vulnerable to me. I look at them like, like only one other person can. Let me tell you something about your Heavenly Father. He's the only one who can see you as you were created to be, designed to be, meant to be. He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees the dream for your life that birthed you into existence. You can wound him, you can reject him, you can grieve him, but he has always been and will always be foolishly, madly, eternally loving you. It's just the way good fathers are. Oh, I wish you'd believe me. See, if you're a Christ follower, grace isn't just the, the beginning of your relationship. Maybe some of you even prayed a prayer last week. Um, for the first time, you invited this grace into your life through a relationship with Jesus. Grace doesn't just descend on you then. It's a daily part of your relationship with him. Um, we know ourselves. We know how messed up we are. And you might even be tempted to think that this, this sort of limits ongoing grace. You think your mixture of sin and salvation sort of limits grace. Uh, this book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, by one of my Christian heroes, uh, Brendan Manning, he writes, when I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say, I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. But here's where grace steps in. God knows who you are, too. And, and let me just finish reading Manning's words. If Jesus appeared at your dining room table today with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your hidden agenda, the mixed motives, the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would still feel his overwhelming acceptance and forgiveness. When, when we started, you were, you were given a rock. Just take that rock in your hand and hold it and feel it. Let me ask you something. What does this rock mean to you right now? Are you someone who likes to throw these things? Are you the kind who is hard on people, judgmental? When someone fails you, lets you down, when they sin against you or someone else, do you pull back and are, are ready? Um, you might even be honest enough to say, you're not a terribly safe person. You're not easy to be around. You're quick to judge. You're quick to be the victim. You're quick to find fault. Is that what this rock means? Maybe this rock is what's already been thrown at you. Something that's been done to you. It, it came from people and from a place um, 
who were supposed to be the human representatives of of God's grace here on earth, the last people who should be throwing stones. Divorce, adultery, bankruptcy, same-sex attraction, abortion, pornography, addiction. I'm sorry, it should never, it should never have come from a place like this, from people like me. Uh, Maybe you've had so many rocks thrown at you. It's like it's become part of your identity, how you see yourself. You've started to pick up the rocks. You've even started throwing them at yourself. In fact, you feel like if God has any posture towards you, um, it's like he's got a handful of rocks. He's He's just ready to throw them at you too. You think that's his posture towards you, condemning, shaming. Do you know what? Jesus wants all of us to do. Drop our rock. If you've been throwing them at others, drop it. If you've been throwing them at yourself, drop them. Here's Jesus' words. If any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. If you've been holding on to a rock that's been thrown at you or or you've thrown it yourself, will you drop it today? I do not condemn you, Jesus says. My grace is ready for you. Drink it. We're all holding a rock in some way. Um, Are you ready to let it go? Here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back, and they're going to close us with a song that I think just sums up this series so perfectly don't even feel like you need to join in you can sit where you are soak in the words soak in the truth but when you feel ready to be a a grace receiver a grace giver and not a stone thrower then would you come up to one of these three stations here at the front and um Would you leave your stone at the foot of an old rugged cross and and receive the grace of God, receive his broken body, receive his blood poured out for you? Jesus takes on the stones that we have thrown, the cross that purchased our grace through, through Christ's death. He stopped the stoning, He took the stoning, and now Jesus calls us to live stone-free towards ourself and towards others. So come when you're ready to receive.